Welcome to the 36th episode of the Turf Talk Young Turf Podcast, presented by Viner Consulting. This is your host, Mason the Intern Viner. And your co-host, Jordan Viner. And on today's podcast, we'll be talking about the tragic passing of Cliff Tucker, Bruno Fernando's return to Maryland, Matt Canada's first recruit, David Summers, the 2019 quarterback from Connecticut, and then an interview with Todd Carton about the surprising lacrosse weekend that it was for both the Lady Tarps and the men. Jordan, let's get it started. Well, first off, I'd like to propose that we call it Todd the Lacrosse Maven from now on. Unfortunately, can't call it that to his face because we already recorded the interview. Hey, Jordan comes up with these names for people that sometimes, you know, he is, he is really, he's the non-rev maven. I don't know. Non-rev maven, there we go. So I think we should start off with the tragic passing of Cliff Tucker in an, auto, in an automobile accident um, a couple days ago. He has my favorite moment at the Xfinity Center. If you're looking at one play, his buzzer beater against Georgia Tech, and that's what Gravis Vasquez pointed out when talking to him was that shot, because it, it was right after Gravis had made a half-court shot, but Gary had called a timeout. But it's really sad to know, because a lot of people said he was a great guy. I never got the chance to know him. It was before my time as intern Mason. But he's really just a special guy to me from that shot. And it's really just, it meant a lot to me, even though it really didn't work out for him when he finally entered the starting lineup. He was still part of my favorite Maryland basketball team that I've seen. Yeah, Cliff has so many so many players have quotes about Cliff, including head coach Gary Williams, Keith Booth, Greer Vasquez, Eric Hayes. So many people thought he was such a great person. Um, it's just a really sad event for us as part of the Maryland family. Yes, it really is. And, you know, there's not much to say when this happens. A guy 28 years old didn't seem to really, really be doing anything wrong in his life. It just, you never know when life can end and you just got to live it to the fullest. And he did accomplish a lot in his short life. He did. And we don't have much else to say. We're very under-equipped to deal with a tragedy of this magnitude. So I guess we should just keep pushing on, Mason? I don't know. Well, there's one more thing. He's really the first player for Maryland that I really knew on the court or on the field that has passed on. And it's just an interesting experience for me. Because a lot of people look at Len Bias as that guy, but for me, it's Cliff Tucker. That is true, actually. Yeah, that is worth talking about. For the both of us, I think this is the first, maybe the first major sports passing of someone we felt like we knew. Now, we saw Cliff get recruited in Maryland. We saw him come here, have some great moments, and then leave. And we just don't get have that experience very often, especially at our age. Yeah, it's just something, you know, you got It's a part of growing up as a sports fan, I suppose. Yes, it is. And with that, on to a happier thing for Maryland men's basketball. The return of Bruno Fernando, who has now withdrawn his name from the NBA draft. Okay, this was a very surprising thing, I think, for everybody involved, including myself and you, Mason. Yes, it was, really. When Bruno submitted his name to the Combine without signing the agent, everybody thought he was just gone. You know, he had finished the season strong, played well against good opponents. Doesn't seem like everything you need to do to be a one-and-done. But I don't know if he wasn't really interested in going right now or the scouts were just not really interested in him. Yeah, it really is surprising. I think that everybody involved... Like I already said, including myself and Mason, we're sure he was gone. He fit the athletic big man profile. But the theory that I've seen a lot online, <clears throat> excuse me, is that 
he couldn't display a shooting stroke at the combine. That's the only plausible reason that he didn't go pro. You see, I think that's not really short-sighted by the scouts or anything, but I know that he can shoot. I don't know if many people think he's an athletic big man that all he does is dunk. That man, mark my words right now, will be able to shoot a three by the time he leaves college for. Oh, I don't know about that because we have such a great reputation, as you know, for developing big men. It's kind of hard to see us teaching him how to shoot if he doesn't already know. But I do agree with you in the regard that he he really did feel like he did everything he needed to do to be a first-round draft pick. You know, these days I don't know about that, though. I'm going to go back on that. He couldn't shoot a three automatic second-round pick at the best. You know, the way these guys are scouting now, they don't pick guys that can't shoot the three. I know, but it just he, he had the fundamentals down. And as it's all very well known to everybody who pays attention even a little bit, NBA pl- scouts draft on potential. And I think Bruno has so much potential in terms of athleticism. And the, I think he does have a shooting stroke that can be taught to shoot to three if he can't already do it. But, I mean, he got ten points and six rebounds a game. He played in the Big Ten. He played well against Jaron Jackson, who's supposed to go top four now. I just I don't know what else he could have done, possibly. He played well against... Well, I don't know. He didn't really play that well against Haas or... But he definitely played it well against guys like Ethan Happ. Big fundamental, big men that play textbook defense that, you know, you can say all you want about Big Ten basketball, but at the end of the day, the big men in general are really fundamentally sound, and I think that gives the NBA scouts the look that they want. You get the guys at Michigan State that are big-time draft picks, but then everybody else seems to be really good fundamental defenders. that They're going to hit you, they're going to slap you. It just, I think, gives the scouts a different thing to look at with the way they play defense in the Big Ten. Well, regardless, we're happy he's back. I, I suppose Kevin Herter is still a much bigger decision for us, I think. And he, it looks like more and more he's gone, but, you know, who knows anymore? I really thought Bruno was gone, too, so what do I know? Hey, Herter, I've heard they like school. I've heard that he really loves Maryland, so that's some pl- positive for us. But I don't really know what Turgeon or any of these coaches say to sell a guy back to college. I don't know what you can say anymore. You know, you're gonna, if you're going to be a first-round draft pick, if you go into a workout and they say, if you go, we're going to pick you, how are you gonna? How as a coach are you gonna say, "Don't take the guaranteed nine million dollars over the next three years and come back to college, or you could tear your ACL in the first game." I don't know how you can sell that. I mean, I know that's their job, but I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, you've also seen a guy when you're playing at Maryland, Justin Jackson, who had that happen to him. Yeah, that's there's an example right next to you that they could your stock could tank. I don't know how you sell it as Mark Turgeon, but they, he sold it once. Maybe you can sell it again. It must be selling like selling magic beans. Like, but that's, hey, if that, you come back, this, 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 and could happen if you make this big decision right now. It's just that's what you're selling. You're selling magic beans that you know. Yeah, maybe it could work out for you, but there's a much better chance that it won't. That's kind of how it looks to me, at least. Yeah, so we're gonna move on from that. On to football recruiting, where Maryland's new offensive coordinator, Matt Canada, has landed his first lead recruit, David Summers, who will be entering the Terps in 2019 as a quarterback. So, as Keith Kavanaugh has said, the, the best-case scenario for Maryland is that we're, gonna, we're never going to see this guy. Tyler Dessou will take over, and we're probably never going to see David Summers. He'll probably transfer out. That sounds mean to him, but really that's what you hope happens. But this is more important for me, and Mason, you can talk volumes about this. 
that this is Matt Canada's first recruit at Maryland, and it is a 6'3", 205-pound, not very mobile, big arm down the field guy, quarterback from Connecticut. What does that say to you about Matt Canada's system? Amen. Amen. We have a pro-style offense, and I'm very happy. But here's my issue. Look, look, look. I had to insert that. And Bruce, if you were listening, that was for you. I sent, I sung during the podcast like you do during the radio show. Look, a guy that throws the ball down the field, going to stand tall in the pocket, going to deliver the ball, and is going to hand the ball off. That is all we need from a quarterback to be successful. That's it. None of this running, flinging the ball, pitching the ball. No. We need a guy that can hand the ball off, that can throw the ball down the field, and that can be accurate, tall, and stand tall, and take a few hits because, you know, that that's just bound to happen. That's what we need. And if he's a three-star, a four-star, a five-star, a two-star, he's a three-star, I do just not record. care. If the guy, if our coordinator sees it in him, then he can do it. And really, DeSue, I know there are people that have much more inside looks than me. I've seen him line up under center. He can barely do it. So unless he's going to develop over the next few years, which I hope he does because he's a great talent, maybe we'll see David Summers over him just because David Summers has been standing tall in the pocket and delivering the ball down the field. Well, here's my issue with David Summers, and this is going right up your alley because I know this is your thing. Here are his offers, his open offers when he, he signed. You ready for this? The Central Connecticut Blue Devils, the Fordham Rams, the Buffalo Bulls, and Pitt. For some reason, there's hey Pitt knows how to pick the quarterbacks. Don't don't give anybody yes, trash. Yes, we've seen that with Nathan Peterman. Mm-hmm. Look, Peterman was good in college. Isn't that what we're looking at right now? Yes, that is what we're looking at. Continue, Mason. So yeah, they got on somebody early. Maybe that means that he'll start to rack up attention and get some big offers and decommit. Uh, A team like Maryland's got to get in there early with guys that they think they want and make advances on them and get them to give them a verbal or whatever you call this now, considering that a lot of people decommit still, it matters that they got this commitment from a guy that picked up one Power 5 offer, then another one, and he decided to choose Maryland. Okay, here's my other thing. I guess this is up the same alley. With what you said about David Summers as a pro-style quarterback that's when that Canada runs, how does this work for our now situation? Well, as, wait, just let me finish here. As our well-publicized scheme is, or it's not scheme situation, we have two quarterbacks that we can start starting caliber mm-hmm. in Terrell Pergrome and Kasim Hill. Both are both fit Walt Bell better than they do Matt Canada, in my opinion. They are both mostly mobile quarterbacks who like scrambling around. Yes, they do, Mason. You've seen Kasim Hill run. Yeah, Kasim Hill likes scrambling around, but he would rather stand there and deliver the ball with a clean pocket. But what does this say about the next four years? With it these says Kasim Hill. It really does. It screams volumes. It screams that from the mountains. The people that think they're going to pick Piggy are just like, he's a sophomore that's been here for three years. He's going to get the job. That's not how these guys work. They want to win. They want to do it now, and they want to do it with speed and accuracy. And that's what Kasim Hill allows them to do. He can stand there. He can throw the ball. Look, Piggy's developing, and by any means for him, if he doesn't get this job, I want him to transfer because he can be successful in a system that fits him. This might not be it. Maybe, look, Matt Canada will adjust the system to whoever they decide to get the job. But if you're looking at a guy, pure talent for the pros, and a guy who's really going to stand there and be like Etling, Peterman, as at Wisconsin that he coached, they make plays and they end up in the NFL. They make the simple plays that are the right move. I was at Gillette Stadium and they had the notes out on Danny Etling, and 
you know, most people think he's a terrible quarterback because, well... Well, he did not play one LSU. No, but... Want to hear something interesting? 15 touchdowns and three picks his last year. If he can do that with Danny Utling, think about what he can do with Hill or Pigrome. But really, the job, in my mind, is Kasim Stolius. Okay, here's some context. Um, Danny Utling plays for the Patriots now, and they just had the notes out on Danny Utling there. Yeah, they had the notes out on their rookies. They had a rookie signing event. Did you read all the rookie notes? I read them on Sony Michelle and Danny Utling. <laughs> Look, right. those are the guys that draw for them. I don't know what you want me to say. Um, look, the football team's looking good. We are now within 100 days of Texas. Yes. And uh, I am pumped up. The athletic season from 2018, as you're about to hear from Todd Carton, came to a sad championshipless end. Well, before we go to Todd in the pre-recorded interview, I want to say a couple of things. We will get to more basketball next time. I know this should have been more basketball-focused considering Bruno just came back, and we will get to that soon. I'm very concerned, because as everybody knows, I have my ear plugged to the ground for basketball. I'm very concerned that we're not getting more recruiting buzz at this point, because last year by now, we were on the trail for Aaron Wiggins and Jalen Sticks. We have nothing right now. Last year, at this time, we were on scale or whatever you want to call these, whatever these guys decide to call their recruiting possible destinations. We were on lists at this point. Look, we were on lists of like eight guys that were in the McDonald's All-American game, and we got one. But so we, at least we got one. We have no buzz this year. It's weird. I don't like it. I know you don't like it either. No, I really don't like it, but personally, it's all going to change. What are you implying there, Mason? It, everything changes. I'm not implying that a coach gets fired from our school, maybe from someone else's. But guys, you know, you get it in. They're the early guys, and then there are guys that can come in late and strike. And maybe Turgeon wants to play it a little bit different because he's been getting in early and not really being able to do anything. Maybe he wants to come in late on one of these guys and try and close. But who really knows what's going on there? No, no one does. And if we find out, we are going to tell you because we know you're concerned probably at this point too. And with that, we're going to Todd interview. We'll see you there. So now on to lacrosse where we saw... Two teams not playing for a championship for the first time since 2010. We'll bring in our lacrosse expert, Todd Carton, in to talk lacrosse along with me and Jordan. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks, uh, Mason. Uh, glad, to, glad to be on, and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, anytime, Todd. Uh, yeah. Let's start off with the women on Friday night. I looked at my phone on the car on the way up to Boston, and I saw that it was 6-1, and I was like, just like, this is over. We're going to the championship. We're going to get another one or get another chance for another one on Sunday. But then it seemed to slowly come apart. Yeah, um, it, was, it was actually 5-1 and 6-2. And, and what happened was that Sam Apugo for BC started winning some draws. Maryland had some uncharacteristic turnovers. And, and then they got, Boston College got some scoring from less than expected sources. A kid named Tara Urbank scored back-to-back goals. And next thing you knew, Boston College managed to do in the first half of the game Friday night what they couldn't do in the championship game last year, which was they, they got their nose in front. So they, were, they got up 7-6. Well, one of the biggest surprises for a casual fan like myself was Megan Widow only scored one goal in the whole game. 
Yeah, what what BC did with her was was pretty much the same thing that the men had done with Jeff Keith in the Cornell game the week before. Is they they safeguarded her, and typically when Kathy Reese has been confronted with having a player safeguarded, she'll generally just do essentially what Cornell did, which is pull that player out and play six on six, thinking, oh well, my six are better than your six. And, and it opens up space for, she hopes, for players like Callie Hartshorn or Carolyn Steele or Ben Giles and folks like that. And I think the big issue was that Maryland could never really string together a series of goals under that strategy, and it might have called for a slightly different approach. Todd, also it's the end of Megan Whittle's career, goes down as one of the Maryland greats. What can we expect? Is did she make your all-time team, Todd? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd have to give that some thought. Um, she, but she's certainly been a great player. I know I constructed an all-time team a couple of summers ago, and, and I didn't include current players. So probably when Taylor Cummings graduated was the year I put that together. And uh, so I didn't include players like Zoe Stukenberg or Megan Whittle at the time. I'd have to take a, a really close look um, because the team that I constructed did move one player sort of out of her natural position and into a straight attacker, and that was Katie Schwartzman. And Schwartzman was more of a midfielder, but she she's a two-time Tawaratan winner, so hard to knock her off the team. Yeah, it is. So what do you think we can expect from the lady lacrossers going forward after the season when losing such a great player? Oh, I, I think Maryland just kind of reloads. I think that, that their defense will be better. This was a, a big kind of a transition year for them defensively. Uh, I think that they have a, and I can't, her name escapes me at the moment, but they have a really top recruit coming in and a kid named Hannah Warther, who was also a top recruit two years ago, who redshirted this year, who I expect will be on the field next year. And, and, there was a player a couple of years ago, uh, Alice Mercer, who was a really a great defensive player who graduated. And she used to say, I practice against the second best team in the country every day. And I think that that's the characteristic of a program that you have with, with both John Tillman and Kathy Reese in that there are players that we don't see that are playing on the scout team and we don't hear their name and, and suddenly, you know, they bided their time for a year or two and, and then they step up and boom, uh, you know, there you have a star. And I also think that, that the player, Grace Griffin, who won freshman of the year in the Big Ten this year is, is going to be a really big-time player next year. Yeah, Todd. I would like to take a second to honor the goalie play of the Turfs with Megan Taylor. You see her cheering for the Caps all over the place, and she's really just turned into one of the best goalies in the girls' game right now. Yeah, she absolutely has. And and uh, she was our first team. She was the goalie of the year as a sophomore. Uh, again, last year she had a little better defense in front of her, and I know, Mason, that you played you play goalie, and, and you know that when your defense is forcing the opposing team to take shots that they're not comfortable with, it makes your save a little bit easier. Yes, and, it does. And, right. And, and Taylor had a lot of that last year. She had a little bit less help 
in that area this year, but she really came on at, at the end of the year. You know, she had 14 saves, I, I think, in the in the loss to Boston College or uh, something along those lines, and or 13 saves. And, and, you know, you can't ask a goalie to do much more than that. And, again, some of the shots she had, no goalie was going to save. There was a shot when Grace Griffin got isolated on Stamacuzo and Griffin tripped over the back of the netting in the goal and Apuzo was standing on the crease one-on-one against the goalie. Yeah, that's a really tough one, you know. At that point for a goalie, the only thing to do is really play the body and I don't even think you can do that in girls. I don't even know how you would defend that. Todd, right. the ve- the venue moved this year to Stony Brook and they had a crowd of 7,500. Was it better there or is it better where the men's game is to you? Well, for for me, it's better for the sport in general if the women's and men's are in the, not necessarily, they don't have to be in the same venue, but if they're in the same metropolitan area so that, you know, two, two, last year they were in the same venue. The year before, uh, the men were in, in the, played in the vet in Philadelphia and the women played at whatever, Talon Energy Stadium or whatever they call it in Chester. And, and so you could be in Philadelphia and you could go to both games and the fans could interact and you could, could make a, a weekend of it. And this is is really awkward, and I think it's not healthy for the game. I think it, it isolates the women's game from the men's game, and and isolates fan bases. It's it's kind of silly. I agree, and we're gonna go to men's now with kind of a transitional question. Dan Morris also had a great game. Who do you think's a better goalie, Todd? Dan Morris or Megan Taylor? <laughs> Jordan, Jordan just asked one of the more impossible questions that I think is between these two lacrosse teams. Yeah, I, that, that, real, that really is a, a, a kind of a crazy question. The, the thing is that, that the games are so different. It's, yeah. it's the only sport I can think of where the men's and women's games barely look like the same sport. I mean, if you think of men's soccer and women's soccer, the pace of play might be different. But the rules are basically the same. The field is the same. Basketball is the same way. Men's and women's lacrosse do not look like the same sport. So in some ways, I'd have to say that, that Megan Taylor is, is gets a slight edge because in women's lacrosse, you have almost no shots coming from outside the eight-meter arc, which is you know a little over nine yards, let's say, it's a bit, bit around that. Whereas in the men's game, you, you do have... Uh, some shots from longer distance and so the the goalie it's a different kind of a different mindset i guess you have to be more prepared as a goalie for those outside shots but the the shots are coming from much shorter distance when you're in the women's game as a rule all right mason so you were at the men's lacrosse game what do you think what do you think went down basically um maryland came out and a lot like they did against Robert Morris, had a slow start, really weren't into it. You go down 6 nothing, and then they come storing back. But Duke is better than Robert Morris, and I think that's what we saw. Duke just turned out to be the better team that day. Yeah, so, so Mason, I, you know, I, I was not in, in Boston and, and was watching the, the ESPN broadcast, and I thought that... As Maryland came back, 
Um, I thought that there was a point where uh, Morris made a phenomenal save on a basically a point blank shot by Justin Gooderding and got a quick outlet to Tim Ropans, who came down, took a very quick shot that um, Fowler saved, and it really wasn't a great shot by Ropans. And I, I really thought that was the point that kind of killed Maryland's momentum. Did you feel that in the stadium, or am I just misremembering or misinterpreting what I saw? Well, I have a di- little bit different view. I was standing almost right next to Rotans when he shot that, and I completely agree. It was a quick shot that I kind of felt was a little bit unneeded, trying to really force something to happen instead of letting the game come to them, which is what allowed them to bring it back. But I don't think that was the dead point they had already reached and then they started to descend. I think it was when they got the ball again and then they shot it and Fowler made another save. That's when you started to see them become a little bit iffy, then they give up two quick goals, and before you know it, they're down 10-7 going into the fourth. Did you did you spend most of the game on the field? Yeah, I spent all the game but the first quarter. I was doing the Albany and Yale press conferences. The rest of the game, I was on the field. It, so what what did you see from Dan uh, from uh, Connor Kelly? Because because he had uh, just an uncharacteristically horrific shooting day. I, you know, he, he took ten shots. Um, he put seven of them, I think, were on goal, but only one hit the back of the net. And you, you kind of think that if Kelly's getting seven shots on goal, three of them are going in. At least. Connor right. Kelly, ever since that injury against Hopkins, he's looked just a little bit off to me. I don't know if it came across on the stat sheet or when you really look at the film and really analyze it or anything, but he just hasn't been the same. And it really came to fruition on Saturday when they were out there against Duke. And I was standing there against with the Maryland film guy. And when he scored, everybody goes, wow, Connor Kelly looks like he's back because he really ripped one and it went in. And the guy says, it really looks like he knows that his career over is over if he doesn't you know, turn it on and really bring him into this game. But it just didn't happen. He shot stick side high a few times. And Fowler, since he's a shorter goal, he's really hard to beat low. And Maryland just seemed to be trying to stick the ball in low. I don't know really where their offense was for part of the game. Well, that just speaks to me kind of that Connor Kelly had such a great career in Maryland. And this is such a disappointing way for it to end, going one for ten. It's just, I know I'm sounding a bit imprecise here, but it's just kind of a bummer to me. Like, he had such a great career and it just kind of went out with a thud. Well, you know, you feel that way looking at looking at both uh, uh, men's and women's side. You, met, you you asked me earlier about Megan Whittle. Well, this is this is a player who, if you look at her whole career, basically averaged three goals a game. She a- basically averaged a hat trick for her career, and she goes out getting, I think, three shots uh, and one goal. So something for both of you guys is, for so long this season, we always heard, Maryland needs to control the face-off circle to win the game. This game, they do control the face-off circle, and they just still lose. I don't understand what happened in that regard, because that was always the key to the game for us. Yeah. Um, Maryland, I thought the, 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 the key to the game on, on Saturday for the men's team was 13 turnovers. Uh, they, you know, they had nine. They averaged about nine a game or so coming into the weekend, and and they they turn the ball over. So you know, that that 
that negates your your faceoff edge pretty much. You know, it was I think thirteen to six in turnovers, fifteen to ten in faceoffs. So you know, Duke really winds up at net plus two. Yeah, and there were definitely faceoffs that Maryland won, and then they didn't end up with the ball. They get the win, but they lose the ball. Todd running down the statute here, thirty-eight to twenty-eight in shots. It seems to me that it's really hard to win a lacrosse game when you get outshot by ten. I, I think you're. Uh, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, and and um, it shows. I think it shows kind of how much time of possession Duke had. Duke seemed to have the ball, and and they showed that on the ESPN broadcast. And I, I really didn't pay close attention to it, but it was clear that Duke had an enormous time of possession edge. And so, you know, I, I read some criticism about sort of Maryland's depth and not quite having the depth. Maybe they didn't have the depth of quite of talent, but I, I don't think Maryland faded at the end of the game because they were tired. The, the offense was tired. I think they were forcing some things and, and trying to come back unnecessarily quickly. So let's take a minute to talk about the rest of the championship weekend. Yale blows out Albany really unexpectedly and then takes the whole thing. Todd, to me, they seem to be like the team that was picked least to come out on top, yet they did it somehow. You know, I, I think that there were, there were some people who, who thought for a lot of the year that Yale was the, actually the best team in the country. They certainly have a, a superstar player in Ben Reeves. Their goalie... Yale had been really, really tough to beat when their goalie played well, and their goalie played very well on championship Monday, and and their face-off guy was essentially able to neutralize uh, TD Irwin, which not many people have done this year. Uh, Maryland did it for three quarters, and then when Irwin figured some stuff out, suddenly Maryland's four-goal third-quarter lead turned into a one-goal loss. Yeah, it seemed to be if you could take away Albany's face-off guy, they were almost done. And Yale did that, and suddenly Albany couldn't really... They couldn't get a save from their All-American goalie, and they couldn't get out in transition, and at that point they were down 7 nothing before you could even blink almost. That, that's right, and, and I think that's, that, that Erlen is really the key to Albany's success pretty much all year is... Again, you know, yes, they they have a couple of great players, uh, and and Nanakoke is probably going to have a phenomenal career, great freshman year, but uh, you know, if they're not getting the ball all the time, and uh, you know, then then they struggle, and and they did, they struggled that way against Maryland. Again, when Maryland was about even in faceoffs, Maryland just dominated Albany pretty much. So. You know that that's the key. That's the whole key. I think you you hit that right on the head. That's the whole key. Was the whole key to their game, and we'll see how they respond next year. I mean, Erwin's just a sophomore. Well, Todd, to wrap up championship weekend, we had probably the game of the weekend, in my opinion, was James Masson beating Boston College sixteen to fifteen on the women's side. Did you see that one? I did. I did watch uh, most of that one. And, and it really was. It was punch, counter-punch. It was back and forth. Ph- phenomenal. Uh, J- 
James Madison, I think, was was down at one point by a couple of goals and came back and was able to string together enough to get a 16-14 lead so that it negated uh, Boston, some of the Boston College's effort. James Madison played a, a really strong, it, it sounds strange to say, in a 16-15 game, but I, I thought James Madison defensively was really strong, forced BC into, again, an uncharacteristically high number of turnovers. I don't have that stack sheet in front of me, but I, BC turned the ball over an awful lot, and, and that kept Madison in the game. And they played with a chip on their shoulder. So uh, congratulations to them. It's uh, first time it was going to be, regardless of who won, the first time in since 2004 that a team named Northwestern, North Carolina, or Maryland didn't win the national championship on the women's side. Yeah, it seemed to be a really good weekend for the people that want the game to start evolving into new champions and stuff. But just to wrap it up, both Maryland teams definitely have bright futures, and it doesn't seem like we'll go long without seeing another championship in College Park from either of these teams. I'm going to vote thumbs up on that. I think that, again, these are these are programs that, that just reload. I, going into the weekend, uh, I, on the men's side, I didn't think that Maryland was the best team going in there. Last year, I thought they were. The year they lost in 2016 to Carolina in overtime, I thought Maryland was the best team going into the weekend. Didn't feel that way this year. I felt it could have gone to any of the four teams that were there. And, and congratulations to Yale and you know, Kathy reached 10 straight Final Four, so, you know, that just speaks for itself. Yes, it does, and Todd, we would like to thank you for coming on the podcast this week, and we'll have you back um, in the fall. Okay, I look forward to it. It was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Todd. That's going to do it for the 36th episode of the Turf Talk Young Turfs podcast. As always, we would like to thank our sponsor, Viner Fourgates. Thanks, Todd Carton, for coming on. And that's going to do it. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.